I do believe the overwhelming majority of Christians do care about the people around them. People you work with, people that live next door, people you go to school with. And I also believe that the overwhelming majority of us would love to share the message of Jesus with the people we care about. But the reality is most of us don't. It's not because we don't care. I think in many ways it's because we've made it more complicated, more difficult than it needs to be. I think we sometimes get confused in understanding what's God's part of this and what's my part in this. I've always found our passage today in Acts 16 to be very helpful to remind us of some lessons that I think will help. So if you have a Bible, turn with us to Acts chapter 16. Last week, Josh took us through the Jerusalem Council, where they arrived at a wonderful decision that salvation is by grace through faith and nothing else. No works of the law, no need for circumcision. It's Jesus and Jesus alone. So Paul wants to go on a second missionary journey to deliver the good news and encourage and strengthen the churches. But chapter 15 ends with a conflict between Paul and Barnabas. I love the fact that Luke doesn't sweep this under the rug. Wherever there's people, there's going to be conflict. Wherever there's people, there's going to be messes. It's just the way it is. And there was a conflict between Paul and Barnabas about whether or not Mark should go with them. So it ends up splitting the team. And Barnabas takes his cousin Mark. They go to Cyprus. That's the last we hear of them. Paul recruits Silas. And they're going to go on a return trip to the churches they planted on the first missionary journey. We do find out later in other New Testament books that Paul and Barnabas and Mark worked it all out, but for now, the teams go in opposite directions. We pick up the story then in chapter 16, verse 1. Paul came also to Derbe and to Lystra, and a disciple was there named Timothy, the son of a Jewish woman who was a believer. But his father was a Greek, And he was well spoken of by the brethren who were in Lystra and Iconium. Paul wanted this man to go with him. And he took him and circumcised him because of the Jews who were in those parts. For they all knew that his father was a Greek. Now while they were passing through the cities, they were delivering the decrees which had been decided upon by the apostles and the elders who were in Jerusalem for them to observe. So the churches were being strengthened in the faith and were increase, increasing in number daily. So Paul and Silas, this time, don't go out on the Mediterranean and up north, but rather they go straight north, they stay on land around the Mediterranean, basically in reverse order of the first journey. 
They come to Lystra and Derby. These were relatively insignificant uh, cities. They had a small population of Jews, and they meet a young man by the name of Timothy. It is likely that Timothy's mom and grandfather, uh, grandmother that Paul talks about when he writes to Timothy came to Christ during the first missionary journey. Uh, and now Timothy is a believer. Timothy's mother was Jewish. Timothy's father was Greek. Now this would have been almost unheard of down around Jerusalem. This would have been deeply offensive and very uncommon. But up here it probably was kind of a non-issue. According to Jewish law, The children took on the religion of their mother, which would have been Jewish. But according to Greek uh, customs, the father ran the family. So the father probably didn't want Timothy circumcised, so he wasn't. Now understand the purpose, according to the text, of this journey was to declare the decision made by the Jerusalem council that you don't have to be circumcised to be saved. So Paul's going to take Timothy as part of the team, but requires him to be circumcised to declare you don't have to be circumcised. So it all gets a bit confusing. Why is that? Well, the text tells us because Paul knew that there were Jews, legalistic Jews in these cities who knew Timothy and knew Timothy's father was a Greek and would have assumed he was uncircumcised. And that was going to create unnecessary conflict and chaos. So in order to prevent an unnecessary obstacle to the gospel. He has Timothy circumcised. Now, it's one thing to circumcise an infant. It is another to circumcise a grown man. In the Old Testament, there was a city by the name of Shechem, and the men were circumcised as adults And the text tells us they were completely incapacitated for days. This is no small thing. Now, certainly Timothy could have demanded his rights. Could have said, I don't have to be circumcised. And on that, he would have been correct. And I'm quite certain Paul would have left him behind. So the first lesson, which is an important lesson, is if we're going to be serious about reaching the people around us that we care about, we have to be willing to be smart enough, thoughtful enough, skillful enough not to put unnecessary obstacles between us and them. We have to understand this is not about my rights. This is not about my freedom. This is about my neighbor. 
As a believer in Christ, I have the right to be a slave to Christ. I have the freedom to be obedient to Christ. But if it's going to be more about you and your rights and your freedoms than it is about your neighbor, you're never really going to be effective in reaching the people around you that you care about. Verse 6, they passed through the Phrygian and Galatian region, having been forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia. And after they came to Mysia, they were trying to go to Bithynia. And the Spirit of Jesus did not permit them. And passing by Mysia, they came down to Troas. A vision appeared to Paul in the night. A man of Macedonia was standing and appealing to him and saying, Come over to Macedonia and help us. When he had seen the vision, immediately we sought to go to Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. The second lesson is the importance of listening for the voice of the Holy Spirit. Their intent was to go to Asia. But for whatever reason, the Holy Spirit forbid them to go to Asia. Maybe it was too dangerous. We don't really know the reasons, nor do we know exactly how this was communicated. But then Paul has a vision which redirects him to Macedonia. This would be the first time missionaries set foot on the European continent. There is a reminder to be effective in reaching the people around us. We have to be sensitive to the leading of the Spirit. I don't know what God is doing in the lives of the people around me, people I care about. But he knows, and who knows how he's preparing someone to hear the message of Jesus. I think sometimes we can get so strategic, we leave God out of the formula. What else happens is sometimes we so want to share the gospel and we start to feel the guilt and I should do this, I'm supposed to do this, and we kind of work ourselves up and then we just kind of unload it in an unfortunate way, in a way that this person wasn't ready to receive and it's uncomfortable for them, it's uncomfortable to us and we walk away saying, I'll never do that again. That's why it's so important to be sensitive to the leading of the Spirit. Maybe on a particular day, it's just a kind word. Maybe it's just a word of encouragement. Maybe it's just a listening ear. One of the things I think we need to come to grips with is in our culture, nobody listens. And we can have a significant impact in the lives of others if we're just willing with a compassionate ear to listen. And who knows how God might move that conversation to something more productive about Jesus. So second thing is the need for a sensitivity every day to the leading of the Spirit. Verse 11, so putting out to sea from Troas, we ran a straight course to uh, Samothrace. 
and on the day following to Neapolis, and from there to Philippi, which is a leading city of the district of Macedonia, a Roman colony. And we were staying in the city for some days. And on the Sabbath day, we went outside the gate to a riverside where we were supposing that there would be a place of prayer. We sat down and began speaking to the women who had assembled. A woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple fabrics, a worshiper of God, was listening. And the Lord opened her heart to respond to the things spoken by Paul. And when she and her household had been baptized, she urged us, saying, If you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come into my house and stay. And she prevailed upon us. So the team goes to Macedonia. They end up at Neapolis, which was the port city, onto Philippi, which is about 10 miles inland. There was a significant city. It was a Roman colony. As a Roman colony, they received certain rights and privileges. Uh, Typically in a Roman uh, colony, there were two magistrates that ran the city. We'll get back to that in just a moment. Another thing to notice is this is one of what we refer to as the we passages in Luke. Meaning Luke at this point actually becomes part of the team. And he's writing as an eyewitness. So for example, in verse 11, he refers to we. And that will go on for a while and then that will change. Some people think Philippi was Luke's home city. That's certainly possible. It's also true that there was a significant medical school At Philippi, Luke was a medical doctor. It's highly likely this is where he went to medical school. So he's on home turf for this visit. In order to have a synagogue, according to Jewish law, there had to be 10 Jewish men. If there were not 10 Jewish men, then somewhere outside the city, typically by a body of water, there was an area of prayer established. The water was necessary for certain cleansings and rituals that they would do. So about a mile and a half outside of Philippi was a river. Paul and Silas go there, and sure enough, they find these women gathered for prayer. One of them is a woman by the name of Lydia. This could either be the Lydian lady, or it could be her actual name. She came from a region that was called Lydia, and it wouldn't have been unusual for her to have been called the Lydian lady. It was an area known for their fabrics and for their dyes. So she was a businesswoman, a very successful businesswoman, who also was a worshiper of God. I think we would use the language a seeker of God. She, with all her heart, was sincerely seeking to know the one true God. But she did not yet know about Jesus. So Paul explains that to her. The Lord opens her heart, and she receives the message. She and her household, which could include employees, servants, relatives, whoever was there, were baptized, and the church in Philippi is actually born in her home. So when you read through the New Testament, you come to the book of Philippians, which is a letter 
to the church that started in Lydia's home. The thing I want to identify as our lesson from that paragraph is the phrase, the Lord opened her heart. We don't know for sure why God steered the team away from Asia to Macedonia, but we would say one thing we know was because God had already prepared the heart of Lydia to hear the message of the gospel. So when she heard it, she responded. I think one of the reasons we make this more difficult than it needs to be is sometimes we lose sight of what's God's part and what's my part. I can't save anyone. I can't open anyone's heart. I can't argue anyone into the kingdom. I can't persuade someone into the kingdom. This is not like a bad sales pitch where I have to somehow get a decision at the end of my pitch. When we think that way, we're likely to make a mess of things. My responsibility is simply respectfully, lovingly, with compassion, share the message. The rest is up to God. We work in partnership. I need to do my part. God will do his part. To understand my part is to understand I don't have to have all the answers. I don't have to be able to answer all the questions. I think a lot of times people don't share the gospel because they're afraid someone will ask questions they don't know the answers to. You know, I've been at this for almost 40 years. I don't have all the answers. Nobody does. You don't have to. If you are a Christian, you understand the gospel. All you have to do is share your own story. You, you don't have to be the Bible answer man or woman. Trust God to do his part. You do your part. Verse 16 It happened that as we were going to the place of prayer, a slave girl having a spirit of divination met us who was bringing her masters much profit by fortune telling. Following after Paul and us, she kept crying out saying, these men are bond servants of the most high God who are proclaiming to you the way of salvation. She continued doing this for many days, but Paul was greatly annoyed And turned and said to the spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And it came out at that very moment. So Paul and Silas and the team encounter a woman who had a spirit of divination. When the Greek uses slave girl, it's a word that would have been used of a very young girl. So what's happening here is her masters are exploiting a very young girl who is possessed by a demon for personal gain. The spirit of a python is literally how the Greek reads. A python was a mythical dragon for the Greeks that represented a demonic Spirit. So someone who is demon-possessed was referred to as someone who had the spirit of a python. This demonic 
power granted her the ability to tell the future. So her masters used that to make a profit. She's following after the team for days. And she's crying out, these men are bondservants of the Most High God who are proclaiming to you the way of salvation. At first glance, the message seems pretty good. But there's a couple of things there. To a Jew, Most High God would mean Yahweh. But to a Greek, it would have meant Zeus. So we're already getting the message confused. In addition to that, because of who she was, she was known as a young slave girl with the spirit of the python. She would have discredited the message. This is also true today. I know Christians that say the right words. They declare the truth of the gospel. But because of how they behave, because of how they conduct themselves, they actually do much to discredit the integrity of the gospel. Frankly, I wish those Christians would keep it a secret that they're Christians because of the damage they do. That's what's going on here, is Paul knows she's discrediting the integrity of the team. He puts up with this for a couple of days. Then he commands the spirit to come out of her. And for the first time in who knows how long, this young slave girl has been set free by the power of Jesus. This paragraph reminds me of the reality of spiritual warfare. When we are sharing Jesus with someone we care about, we need to understand this is not merely a human conversation where I am trying to persuade someone to my way of thinking. This is a spiritual war. This is an epic cosmic battle that's been going on for thousands of years, and what's at stake is forever. There is no way the enemy's going to release someone in his power without a fight. If you've ever been engaged in a conversation with someone about Jesus and they react in a way that just seems so puzzling, seems so confusing, maybe seems so over the top. It's good to remind ourselves there's far more going on here than merely a human conversation. That's why I must be so dependent upon the power of the Spirit. Greater is he who is in us than he that is in the world. It's nothing to be afraid of, but it is something to be taken seriously. This is a spiritual battle we're entering into. Verse 19, But when her masters saw that their hope of profit was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace before the authorities 
And when they had brought them to the chief magistrates, they said, These men are throwing our city into confusion, being Jews, and are proclaiming customs which it is not lawful for us to accept or to observe, being Romans. The crowd rose up together against them, and the chief magistrates tore their robes off them and proceeded to order them to be beaten with rods. When they had struck them with many blows, they threw them into prison, commanding the jailer to guard them securely. And he, having received such a command, threw them into the inner prison and fastened their feet in the stocks. So the masters are upset. Just to be clear, they're angry because they can no longer exploit a young slave girl for personal profit. But they can't say that to the magistrates. So as often happens today, the true motive is hidden. And what is publicly presented sounds much more noble. These men are are creating confusion in our city. Then a bit of racial prejudice, of course, that's because they're Jews. The Jews were not well-liked in these areas, so of course they're creating chaos, they're Jews. And they're offending who we are as Romans. Now to understand as a Roman colony, the most important thing was to maintain order in the city. At the top of Rome's list of things that they hated was when there was chaos, when there was confusion, when there was insurrection in a city. They would do what they needed to immediately to put that down. So when these masters phrased their concern, this was very strategically done. These men are creating confusion in our city. And of course they're doing that because they're Jews and they're offending us as Romans. This would immediately get the attention of the magistrates. So they respond. They tear their robes. The crowd then takes Paul and Silas and beats them with rods. This was not a little beating. Other, in another place in the New Testament, Paul refers to three beatings he endured. This is likely one of the three. At the end of this, they would have been a bruised, bloodied mess. Then they instruct the jailer to securely put them in the prison. The text says that they were thrown in uh, maximum security, probably a dungeon, and even had their feet put in stocks. It's hard for us to imagine how horrific this would have been. To be beat up, to be bloodied, to be thrown in a stinky, smelly dungeon with other prisoners with your legs in stocks. Now stop and think about this. If the missionary team 
Paul and Silas were focused on their rights and their freedoms. They would have had a pity party and when released would have gone home and said, I'm done with this. This isn't what I signed up for. But this wasn't about their rights and freedom. This was about the freedom to be obedient to the mission that Jesus had called them to. So their response was actually quite remarkable. Verse 25. But about midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns of praise to God. And the prisoners were listening to them. And suddenly there came a great earthquake so that the foundations of the prison house were shaken. And immediately all the doors were opened and everyone's chains were unfastened. When the jailer awoke and saw the prison doors opened, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself, supposing that the prisoners had escaped. But Paul cried out with a loud voice saying, Do not harm yourself, for we are all here. And he called for lights and rushed in and trembling with fear, he fell down before Paul and Silas. And after he brought them out, he said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? In this moment, when most people would have been discouraged and having a pity party. They're praying and singing hymns of praise to God. Their reaction was so uh, unusual that the prisoners were all listening to this. These prisoners were not choir boys. They were bad boys. That's why they were in prison, but they were so struck by what was happening that they were listening to all this. Then a great earthquake comes. Now, just because there's an earthquake doesn't mean the prison doors open and the chains fall off. So there's the added dimension. This wasn't a fortunate coincidence. This was sent by God. The doors open, the chains fall off. The jailer wakes up sees what has happened, assumes everybody's gone, knows he'll be executed, pulls out his sword to kill himself, and Paul yells at him and stops him and says the most remarkable thing, we're all here. How many nights do you suppose these bad boys dreamed of the possibility of escape? And now in this moment when they could run to their freedom... They had observed something so other than what they could explain. They didn't escape. They stayed with Paul and Silas. The jailer was so taken by that that he falls at the feet of Paul and Silas and says, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? Whatever you have, I want it. I've often thought I would love for people to run to me, fall at my feet, and say, Sir, what must I do to be saved? Wouldn't you love it if that's the way it worked? But it's good to remind ourselves why that happened. 
It happened because they had the courage to preach the gospel for which they were beaten and bloodied, thrown in a dungeon with their feet in stocks and responded by praying and singing hymns of praise to God. A response so other than what anyone would expect. It caused the prisoners to remain, which led to the jailer to say, I don't know what you got, but it's something I want. Often our light is going to shine most brightly when life is the most difficult. And if in that moment, instead of demanding my rights and freedoms, I respond in a way that is so other than what's happening in the culture, people can't help but look at us and say, I don't know what you have, but I want that. Verse 31, they said, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved, you and your household. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him together with all who were with him in his house. He took them that very hour of the night and washed their wounds. And immediately he was baptized in all his household. And he brought them into his house and set food before them and rejoiced greatly, having believed in God with his whole household. So Paul responds, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you shall be saved. But notice the verse goes on to say, then they explained to the jailer all that that means. The jailer then received it. He believed. He took them out probably in the prison courtyard to wash their wounds. And Paul and Silas turned right around and baptized the jailer and his household uh, there in that spot. Verse 35. Now when the day came, the chief magistrates sent their policemen saying, release those men. And the jailer reported these words to Paul saying, the chief magistrates have sent to release you. Therefore come out now and go in peace. But Paul said to them, They have beaten us in public without trial, men who are Romans, and have thrown us into prison. And now are they sending us away secretly? No, indeed. But let them come themselves to bring us out. The policemen reported these words to the chief magistrates, and they were afraid when they heard that they were Romans. And they came and appealed to them. And when they had brought them out, they kept begging them to leave the city. They went out of the prison and entered the house of Lydia. And when they saw the brethren, they encouraged them and departed. I am absolutely convinced that Luke writes this last paragraph with a smile on his face. So the chief magistrates send word, tell the prisoners that they are free to go, get out of town. So the jailer tells Paul, you're released, you can leave. But Paul says, I don't think so. 
We are Roman citizens. And everything you've done to us is illegal. Now, they weren't from a Roman colony. They were full-fledged Roman citizens, both Paul and Silas. And Roman citizens had significant rights. Local authorities had almost no authority over a Roman citizen. They could not be beaten without a trial. They could not be imprisoned without a trial. And if they were accused, they could appeal to Rome. So local authorities rarely had any authority over Roman citizens. Everything that had been done was illegal. If Paul and Silas reported this to the Roman authorities, the magistrates certainly would have been out of a job. And it is highly likely Philippi would have lost its status as a Roman colony. That's why the text says the magistrates were afraid when they heard this. They were in big trouble. Scholars debate about why exactly Paul and Silas chose this moment to reveal that. At this point, they have nothing to gain. They've been released. They can leave town. But the text tells us, first of all, you have to be amused by how the tables have turned. Now the magistrates are begging, please, Paul and Silas, to leave town. So now Paul and Silas are in charge. And the magistrates are begging them to leave. The way the text reads, they stroll down the street to the house of Lydia. They spend some time there encouraging the church, seeing how everybody's doing. Once they had completed that, they kind of stroll out of town. Most scholars believe the reason they identified themselves as Romans at this point was for the protection of Lydia and the church that was established in her home. The message was, if you do anything to persecute these people, we will report what you did to us as Romans. In the book of Matthew, Jesus says, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. I believe this is a narrative version of that same theology. Our last lesson is the truth that you can't stop this. Throw them into the deepest, darkest dungeon. Lock their legs in the stocks. You can't stop this. There was a harvest of souls in the prison, in Lydia's house, the jailer's household. You can't stop this. When you're part of the mission that God has given us. You're part of something that cannot be stopped, that will matter forever. At the end of the story, no matter what, 
Jesus wins, and his church will triumph. You can't stop this. Five simple lessons. The first is we need to be thoughtful enough. We need to be strategic enough that we're not putting unnecessary roadblocks between us and the people we've been called to reach. This isn't about my rights. This is about my neighbor. Second of all is sensitivity to the Holy Spirit. Only he knows who it is that he's he's prepared. So every day I'm sensitive to who God would have me talk to or care for or listen to. We need to remember that only God can open up someone's heart to believe. That's not my job. It's not my job to try to make that happen. My job is simply to speak the truth with love, to speak with kindness and respect. The rest is up to God. There is a reminder that spiritual warfare is real. This is not just a human conversation. This is a cosmic war. Therefore, we're dependent upon the Holy Spirit. What's at stake is eternity. And finally, there should be something within us that reminds us. No matter what, you can't stop this. Ultimately, no matter what, no matter what a government does, no matter what a culture does, no matter what anybody else does, you can't stop this. And ultimately, Jesus wins and his church trials. Which is why we continually call ourselves together that we would dare to be the church. Our Father, we're thankful this morning that you have called us to be part of something that will matter forever. Lord, I don't doubt that we together as Christians genuinely care about the people around us. So may we be diligent to share the good news of Jesus that we might accomplish the mission you've given us as church. In Jesus' name, amen.